0: Stories, and for the hour, we're going to be telling the story of Brandon Burlsworth, a remarkable life story that ended too abruptly, and it's being depicted in the motion picture Greater, which is in a theater near you, and it's a must-see. Bring your family if you're a coach, bring your team. And joining us to start off the storytelling about Brandon, because he played at the University of Arkansas, he was a walk-on who became an All-American, but the story is so much bigger than that, we figured we'd reach out to the Arkansas Democrat Gazette newspapers and to, of all people, Matt Jones, who writes about sports there. Matt, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: Matt, for those of us who've never heard of Brandon Burlsworth, give us a quick summary, two or three minutes. Tell us his story.
1: Well, as you said, he was a walk-on, which means that he was not uh, given an athletic scholarship uh, to, to play football. Um, came to Arkansas in 1994, graduated in, in 1998, and he's you know really one of the most uh, famous football players that, that's ever played at the University of Arkansas. There are only uh, three players at Arkansas who've ever had their number retired, and, and he's one of them. Nobody ever wears number 77 anymore in fact in the locker room uh, for the for the football team uh, his locker is uh, in, in, in clay encased in, in glass it's still got his uniform in there his cleats, his helmet everything from his last game or his last practice at Arkansas is still there kind of as a reminder uh, for the football players who have come through now for close to 20 years uh, just about him and and then when you really kind of dig a little bit further into it, it's a remarkable story. He was a walk-on, uh, but he became an All-American by his final year at Arkansas in, in 1998. Not only that, but he's the only football player in the history of the Razorbacks uh, who earned his master's degree by the final football game he played. And you think about the demands that are put on college football players, and the demands that it you know that, that, that are put on you to uh, earn a master's degree. That's uh, it's pretty remarkable that he was able to do that in the span of about four and a half years. Uh, so, uh, the the thing with Brandon is that uh, he was a great football player, uh, by all accounts, a, a great person. And what his family has done a good job of is to preserve his legacy. Um, there are awards uh, for every high school, or every high school football team throughout the country can. Uh, sign up to give out the Burlsworth Award for uh, kind of the MVP highest character player on their football team. Uh, there's uh, the Eyes of a Champion. Uh, the Burlsworth Foundation has partnered with Walmarts across the country uh, to provide free uh, eye care and glasses for underprivileged children. Uh, there are football camps in Brandon Burlsworth's name. Um, the the Burls Kids is a group of 25 kids that gets to go to every Arkansas Razorbacks and Indianapolis Colts football game uh, for free. And these are kids that typically have never been to uh, a, a Razorback or a Colts game in their life. And then, you know, the really the most recent thing, um, in addition to the movie, is the, the Brandon Burlsworth Trophy, which is an annual college football award uh, that's given out to the top football player in America who began his career as a walk-on the way that Brandon did. And so when you kind of look at the the portfolio of both Brandon's life and what the, the foundation uh, that was uh, founded in his his memory has done, it's pretty remarkable, and you can see why he's one of the you know uh, most well-known people here in the state of Arkansas.
0: You bet. And by the way, for those who don't know it, Arkansas football is a big deal because Arkansas does not have a professional football team, nor does the state of Mississippi. And this is why the SEC, I think, is, it's part of the reason why the SEC is so big in places like Alabama, Arkansas, and Mississippi. There is no pro team in those states. These become, in essence, the local home pro teams with deep allegiances. I wanted to talk to you about one thing that, that interests us always, and that is of, often when you find athletes who do remarkable things and it was grounded in their faith, or even coaches. We did two hours on John Wooden, and the media rarely covered his faith But every athlete we talked to, the first thing they talked about was John Wooden's commitment to God. And that's everybody from Kareem Abdul-Jabbar straight through to Bill Walton, an atheist and a Muslim. Both of them said Jesus Christ played a big role in John Wooden's life. Talk about God and faith and what it did for Brandon. we got about a minute and a half.
1: Well, I think that you don't have to look any further, uh, you know, how, how important his faith was to him. Uh, than how he died. He died on a Wednesday night when he was driving home from Fayetteville to his hometown of Harrison. It's about a 60-mile drive, but it's through the mountains of Arkansas, uh, very, very hilly, very curvy. Uh, And he died in a car accident on his way home to go to church with his mother. And the interesting story there is that uh, that night, Arkansas had had, uh, tied Mississippi State for the SEC Western Division Championship the year before. So that night, Arkansas's uh, football team was going to get its SEC West championship rings. And Brandon Burlsworth actually went to Houston Nutt, who was Arkansas's football coach, and said, Coach, I'm going to miss the ring ceremony uh, because uh, I I told my mom I would go home and go to church with her on Wednesday night. And I think that just kind of tells you what kind of person that Brandon was. The the unfortunate aspect of of not only him dying but but just the timing of it, he had been drafted by the Colts uh, 11 days uh, prior to his accident and his death. And he had gone through a rookie minicamp the weekend before his death, and the, the Colts coaches had had raved about him. They were, he was even the only rookie uh, that the Colts had given a, a playbook to, and it just kind of shows you. I think the character, uh, the, the the ability, uh, just the type of uh, a person that he was.
0: Yep, and and saying no to an award ceremony for himself so he could celebrate something higher with his mom and live up to that word. Just about tells you everything in one story you need to know about this young man's character and why he is the legacy he is in Arkansas and hopefully about to be in this big country. Matt Jones from the Arkansas Democrat Gazette, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Okay, thank you for having me.
0: And what a story. And when we come back, we're going to continue to tell the story of the life of Brandon Bowlesworth, the walk-on who became an All-American who died tragically in a car wreck. We're going to talk to the man who knew of this story. He's in the real estate business, and yet he felt compelled, called, to turn this story into a movie. And the funny thing is, the guest who you're about to hear from, well, he'd never written a script. He'd never done a movie. And that's what we love about the American character. Lack of experience has never stopped any of us from trying and doing anything Again, this is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories The Life of Brandon Burlsworth for the Hour. More after these messages. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we just heard, heard from Matt Jones from the Arkansas Gazette who writes about sports there. What a story. And Greater is the movie that will tell you that story in theaters near you, and it's opening this weekend. And we love telling the stories behind the stories. When we did There Goes My Life, that Kenny Chesney chestnut, that great song, We got the story behind the story. It's on our website. Go to ouramericannetwork.org. The writer Wendell Mobley, he lost his one-year-old, and out pops that song like 15 years later. And Kenny hears it, and he's got to sing it for the rest of his life. Again, go to ouramericannetwork.org. And now we're going to talk about the story behind the story of the making of this movie about Brandon Burlesworth because what a story, and it turns out a man who lives in Arkansas, and his real job, his full-time job, his day job, is real estate, but Brian Rindel, he had something in mind. He thought this had to be a movie, and he had never made a movie, but that's America, and we do things all the time that we never did before. Heck, the Wright brothers never made a plane before. They were in the bicycle business, and joining us is Brian Rindel, and he's the producer and actually the co-writer of this terrific script. And we're talking about Greater. Brian, thanks for joining us on this show.
2: Hey, thanks for having me.
0: You bet, Brian. So you 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 know the Brandon Burlsworth story, and what makes you think that you're the guy who's going to make a movie?
2: That's a good question. It was, uh, you know, honestly, it was like once I found out that Brandon had died. You know, I was just walking by television, and I had already seen a couple weeks before that that he'd been drafted by the Colts, and this was a guy that got everything he deserved uh, because he was such a hard worker. He turned himself into an All-American, becomes a starter, All-SEC. And, and I walked by the TV a couple weeks later just thinking I'm going to get an update on Brandon's story in the NFL, and they say that he's dead. And so it was just a devastating devastating thing and I think it was it, it's funny over the last 17 years I can't tell you how many people in the state of Arkansas have said the same thing that they remember where they were when they heard Brandon Burleswood had died kind of like a you know an Elvis Presley or, or something like that you know, yep. to the to sports fans in Arkansas And so, so I, I saw that and I said I mean literally almost immediately I said somebody has to make a movie about that guy because what a great story you know he even looks like a movie character with the with the uh, Clark Kent glasses and, and so, uh, you know, it was something that I couldn't get off out of my mind. It was something that literally was on my mind for six or seven years. And I kept thinking somebody was going to make a movie and it never happened. And, and, uh, and I felt like it was almost like a calling. And so something I couldn't get out of my head and nothing, nothing like that had ever happened before. And, and so, uh, and and I just kept over those years visualizing how the story might be told and kind of had this vision. And, and so, uh, so I'm mean, at the, at the end of this, when I finally just decided that I was going to do it, I told my wife and she was like, she was almost like, just don't tell anybody, you know, just because she's afraid that it'd be embarrassing, you know, that you're telling something that you're going to make. That sounds crazy.
0: Right. It sounds, sounds crazy. Like gonna,
2: you know, you're going to fly to the moon. But right. <laughs> like, she was like, just don't tell anybody.
0: Well, you know, Brian, I'm preparing right now for an hour on Sylvester Stallone. And what I'm going to be focusing on is that point in his life when he writes the script for Rocky and he's also homeless and he's going through the same thing. Hey, who is he to write a script? He plays thugs in subways and Kojak shows, and he's like the scale in prison laying on a floor. He's like an extra and he's got a script he wants to pitch to Hollywood while he's sleeping on a bench at the Port Authority. So this is the yes. thing about America. When you've got a calling, Brian, when you've got a passion, and there's a story you feel like hasn't been told, that's just got to be told. That was that's what was really going on in you, wasn't it?
2: Yeah, I think so. I really do. And uh, that's, I, I mean, I, you talk about Rocky. Is like that's that's one of those unbelievable stories, you know, that everybody just loves, and it's one of my favorite movies. I mean, it's just a, you know, it's just such a. Story about you know just a human story. As
0: and you I were pre- like story Brian, like, as you like as, as you were preparing for this, what what surprised you most that you didn't know about Brandon that you learned and you knew had to be in this movie and you didn't want anybody touching it or messing with it.
2: You know, I, I think one of the things that surprised me the most was when I first met the family. It was just that you know what uh, that he was even better than what everybody said you know, there's, I kept thinking, I was like, I'm going to start down this road and then I'm going to find, you know, some dark secret or, you know, it was like, no, this guy was the real deal. I mean, literally even his best friends, uh, would say stuff like, man, I never heard the guy cuss. I literally, literally, even, I said, even when you guys were, you know, just together, it was just the buddies and you're together. He's like, no, never heard it. Never, never did. And so, uh, you know, you hear these stories about this guy being just so good. You know, like I say he dies going home to go to church, you know, yep. with his mom on a Wednesday night. So so that was one thing, just that he was actually just as good or better than what everybody said. And then I think another thing that surprised me when I started interviewing the family was just how much fun, you know, he was. And how they were, you know, everybody, not only the family, but friends and coach and stuff started telling me stories and inevitably every time we'd be laughing and, you know, it would be like, man, that's, this is, this is going to be a lot more fun of a movie than what I anticipated. This is, this is going to be, this is going to be a fun movie for guys, girls, whoever, uh, to watch. So.
0: You know, we did an hour on the life of Bear Bryant, we had on a, a great writer who's written so many books about leadership, and his name is Pat Williams. He's the co-founder of the Orlando Magic. And Pat was telling us uh, that what was really interesting about Bear is anytime you got a bunch of guys together to tell Bear Bryant stories, it was just laughs and more laughs yeah. and more laughs. And I think that this, this movie really does capture the spirit that you're talking about. One of the things that really intrigued me was, you know, Brandon starts as a walk-on and he's just the brunt of jokes and people are, you know, just treating him so poorly. And he ultimately becomes their leader, but at no point in the movie does he bear a grudge towards those guys. Let's talk yeah. about that.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I You know, I just don't think that was in him. I don't think he was, you know, it was in him to bear grudges, and I think he was... He was just a guy that was going to, you know, he didn't expect to step onto an SEC campus and everybody, you know, give him anything. And so I, I think he's, you know, he was a little bit of a fish out of water. You know, he comes from a small town in Harrison, Arkansas, and a little bit sheltered from the rest of the world. And then he shows up on campus like a lot of college freshmen do. You show up and it's like, oh, there's a whole bigger world out here. And people are from, You know, different cities and states and everybody gets thrown together. And I think he was, he just rolled with it and he just didn't expect anything from anybody and just went to work and, and stayed true to himself and stayed really close to his family. And, uh, so that I think that was it. I just don't think he was really bore any grudges. He just won them all over. I think he just won them all over before the end of the end of his uh, his days there
0: yep and so. and in the in the end he won the, the sports world over i mean there's an actual trophy named after him talk about that if you could brian
2: yes the the Burlsworth trophy and and this is this is an interesting story is that i don't know if, if uh you know not that many people know about that i guess maybe some people here locally but i don't it's not even something that i go out and publicize a lot but but this is the trophy was something that i created uh, with the Burlsworth family. Uh, and we started working on it in 2009. And so, and it was, it really was kind of separate from the movie, but as I was doing, as I was writing the screenplay, I, I, I knew Brandon story was great. I knew he was, uh, you know, this, this great player that was a walk on and stuff, but it, for some reason had never occurred to me that he might be the greatest walk on in the history of college football. And at, at some point when you're digging into the story and you're writing the screenplay, you start thinking, what is it that's so significant about this guy that, that you can just tell somebody in one sentence, you know, and I said, he's quite qual- possibly the greatest walk on history of college football. So I go to the Burlsworth Foundation on Valentine's Day, 2009, and, uh, they were having a board meeting and I just told, them, Hey, look, I've got an idea and, uh, I think we, uh, I'd like to, to do this, if you guys would, would support this and, and, uh, and I actually, uh, you know, got a sculptor to make the trophy and I had to figure out exactly, you know, what pose you were put him in, you know, it's like, do you want to, you want him in, in a, in a stance and a position? Uh, do you want him standing up? And, and I found this photo from, uh, it was in Sports Illustrated of Brandon. Uh, after he died where he was standing up and he was pass block and I said, you know, that looks to me that looks like the that's
0: pose the you know, that's the picture, that's, that's the picture that's the pose, and that's the trophy and by the way, without Brian there is no movie greater go to the theater near you and catch this film and bring a family member if you're a coach, bring the team is all I can tell you not many movies will inspire you like this one Brian Reindl, thanks so much for joining us Hey, thanks for having me, Lee. You bet. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. More after these messages. The life of Brandon Burlsworth celebrated today on Our American Stories. This is our American Stories, and we're continuing our hour-long celebration of the life of Brandon Burlsworth. And we heard from a local reporter in Arkansas who's been writing about sports for a long time, and he laid down the basic story. We spoke to Brian Rindle, who was obsessed with this story and wanted to make sure it came to the cinema. And by the way, what I loved about Brian's story, and it's replete in American history, is that he had never made a film before, but that wasn't about to stop him. He's an entrepreneur. He figured it out. It's opening in theaters everywhere, and I thought there'd be no person better to bring on than the person who met Brandon Burlesworth as a senior at the University of Arkansas and Coach Houston Nutt, who coached Brandon Burlesworth in that final year and who went on to coach many more years at Arkansas and then at all Miss and now works at CBS Uh, calling plays and color commentary at CBS and knows a lot about college sports. Coach, thanks for joining us.
3: Hey, thanks for having me.
0: You bet. You know, Coach, what was stunning about this story is you come in and the seniors are, well, they're the seniors. And when a new coach tends to come in to a big-time college football program, well, he wants to get cracking with those young guys. And Brandon Bolesworth basically sells you on the idea that maybe these seniors who hadn't had a very good year before might just be the kind of seniors you could win with. Talk about this young man and your very first encounter with him, Coach.
3: Yeah, that's a great question. I, I never will forget it's either the first meeting or second meeting. Brandon is typically shy self at six foot four, three hundred and fifteen pounds, weights to everybody files out of the meeting room. And I can tell he's just kind of waiting. Everybody gets out and find the last teammate leads. He says, "Coach, can I visit with you?" I said, "Yeah, Brandon, what's going on, yeah. Coach? I just wish when you talk to the media and the reporters, TV, I wish you would not use the word rebuild." And we got a group of seniors, and he starts naming some of his teammates: Russ Brown, Grant Garrett, Joe Dean Davenport, uh, Anthony Lucas, Clint Stern. These guys are, are they're winners and we haven't had very much success, but coach, I promise you this. We'll do whatever you ask us to do. Just, you know, believe in us. And so when he said that, I, I immediately, the next morning, went to staff meeting. I said, let me tell you, we got a guy the name of Brandon Burlsworth that really sent a message to me last night. He wants to make sure that his scene, this senior group goes out the right way. And so by gosh, let's make sure we give them every opportunity. And, and uh, they were they, they were such winners and fighters and so committed.
0: And, Coach, what happens? You know, you get there, New. You hear this even from generals. I remember interviewing Donald Rumsfeld once, and he said, I wanted to get out of the sec def position. I couldn't see the war clearly. We needed new blood in there. We needed new people to lead our troops. I can't see it. What happens when a new coach comes in? Is it just... Cutting it from a different angle? Is it a different style? What happens that can turn a team around like you did with this essentially same set of boys, Coach?
3: I, I went to Dean Weber, who'd been there for over 30 years. He's our trainer. And I, and I asked him, I said, I've had two meetings with these guys, and I, they looked apart the physically, and they look good in pads, and they run around, they, they're quick. I mean, what's the problem? And and Dean Weber makes this statement to me, I'll never forget, he says, They're individuals and they don't think they're gonna win. And so that was my job. Our job as a new staff is we've got to paint that picture. We've had we had enough athletes, but the mental part of it is they had no belief. And it was the attitude, anytime something went wrong, it was the attitude of, I confess, it's your fault. Right. And so I knew with Brandon, I knew that we had a cornerstone, a backbone, a guy that we could lean on. And so I met with the seniors about a week and a half after that and, and basically painted this picture. Fellas, we're getting ready to win. But in order for us to win, we got to have your best play. Of, of all your life, we got to have your best performance. And we got to have this attitude and the heart. And And the other guys, these other, these sophomores, junior freshmen who don't know, who don't have any idea trying to find their locker, they don't know how important it is right now because you do. You know that you only have three months left of football your senior year. This is it. And so we started leaning on them. And I'm going to tell you, Lee, we, we get on this roll, and I'll never forget the Alabama week. It's Wednesday. We didn't have a very good practice we go in a meeting room and it's the indoor in the Brawl center and i come we come out we leave about nine forty-five, ten o'clock at night and it's dark and there's a 50 yard indoor arena and we and you hear you can tell there's turf shoes on a turf moving and who is this and We walk over there and and lo and behold of course it's brandon i said brandon what are you doing why aren't you home sleeping or studying or something coach had a bad day today and I just want to make sure my footwork is right. I want to make sure I know who to block. I'm just going through these plays. And so that night, I felt like, man, I can't wait to – tell. I meet with a team Thursday night, 48 hours prior to the game, by myself with just a team, and I told them how much this teammate cares about his teammates. He's very unselfish. He was up here at 10 o'clock at night making sure – he wanted to make sure that he had his footwork down. And we, we made Alabama quit that day and beat them 42-6 to six with Sean Alexander, a great tailback. Just uh, to me, that's it. It's that vision. you got to be able to see it.
0: And you were able to cast a vision using Brandon as your anchor. And without yes. Brandon, uh, that would have been really difficult, wouldn't it have been, Coach?
3: There's no question about it. And, and here's a guy. Now, remember, he came out of high school with a, just a few scholarships. So his, his vision was, I'm gonna make it to the Arkansas Razorbacks. Well, he's a recruited preferred walk on. That means no scholarship. So he's having to fight and grind each and every day as a scout team, had to change his body. And that means workout, commitment, eating right, nutrition, all this stuff. And I had the i was fortunate enough to have the finished product when I got there. This guy's six foot four, three hundred and fifteen, they just hadn't won. Right. But without his anchor, without that cornerstone of leadership and I can hear it right now, Lee. He'd be fourth and one, third and one. He'd be, it resonates in the huddle. And his words would be, How bad do you want it?
0: And he was constantly push, pushing the guys. And I would assume, coach, that part of being a great coach, and we did two hours on John Wooden, and he was always trying to tap the leadership capabilities of the real leaders on the team and let them carry some of the weight. Is that what is part of your strategy with your boys? <laughs>
3: It is, because when you when you give them that ownership, that means they have ownership in the locker room, they have ownership in the study hall, and they have ownership when it's third and one. This is their team. And that's exactly the formula, exactly the recipe that we had. And when everybody rolls up their sleeves and fall on these guys, and they don't care who gets the credit, watch out.
0: Yeah, you're dangerous when that happens, Coach. Yeah, you're yeah, dangerous. Yeah. And so that that Alabama game, which is a remarkable part of this movie, and, folks, we're talking about the movie Greater in the larger context of Brandon Burlsworth's life. It is an inspiring movie. If you can, go see it. Bring your family and friends. There aren't many movies like it. I think it's as good a sports movie as I've seen in a long time, and that's saying a lot, and we love sports here on Our American Stories. Talk about that game, Coach, just about a minute right here, what it meant to you, what it meant to the boys. And this was a home game. This was Alabama <laughs> at Arkansas. Talk about that.
3: Well, it goes back for me because I was recruited by Bear Bryant. So Bear Bryant was in my living room. My mother and my father lived in Fort Sass, Arkansas, the home of Bear Bryant. And So there's, there was a relationship. And so I have this vision of Alabama being at the top of the top. When I hear the name Alabama, there's instant respect. And so there's a nervousness that goes with that. And you're thinking, I'm going to lead this team out that hadn't beaten Alabama too many times, and we're going to face them in our own backyard. I don't want to be embarrassed. I want them prepared and you had this you know this nervousness. Man, it's just an exciting time and our guys played so hard and there's nothing like winning.
0: Well, coach, there must have been nothing like winning at home early in the season in Arkansas, beating a world class team like Alabama in a world class program. When we come back, more with Coach Houston Nutt, who had the privilege and the honor of coaching Brandon Burlsworth. We're talking about Brandon Burlsworth's life story. We're talking about Greater the Movie. And we're talking about big things like character, leadership. And in the next segment, we will talk about faith and the prominent role it played in Brandon's life and the role it plays in Coach Nutt's life. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib and this is Our American Stories. We're broadcasting out of Oxford, Mississippi to a whole lot of big cities in this country and small towns too. There's no reason national radio can't come out of a small town because, my goodness, great football, great college football comes out of small towns all over this country. And if America loves one thing more than anything, it's football and college football. And for the hour, we've been talking about Brandon Bolesworth, his life, his story. We've talked to reporters. We've had some pre-interviews that we're going to throw some clips to. But we want to talk to the man who coached Brandon Bolesworth in his senior year at the University of Arkansas, And Coach Houston Nutt joins us again. Coach, thanks again for joining us. Uh, My pleasure. I wanted to go back to that first conversation because we were talking off mic about it, Coach. Here's a kid coming up to you. You're the big man on campus now. You're the coach. He comes up and he's sort of telling you what you need to be thinking about. And he did it, as you described, both with a sense of deep confidence, but at the same time, a sense of deep humility, which really made you think long and hard about that, has that ever happened to you before in your coaching years, that somebody who was a senior was going to tell you not to use the word rebuild?
3: That's the only time. And I've taken over uh, places at Murray State, Boise State, Ole Miss, and that's the only time that a, a, a senior that has come up to me with such humility, grace, but then on the same end, still stern with confidence of trust us, believe in us, We're begging, I mean, it was almost like I'm begging you to look at this group, especially his offensive line group that had paid a severe price with no success, but he knew, he knew there was something in this group because of their work ethic and because of their attitude.
0: And let's talk a little bit about some of the people who've known him. I want to play a clip from Tommy Tice, and this is Brandon's high school football coach. Let's take a listen, Coach.
4: The first thing I noticed about him, he was a 7th grader mm-hmm. and just coming into our program and uh, you know I kind of worked with all grades 7 through 12 and uh, he was uh, nothing special, you know he was a kind of a gangly, pretty bigger kid than the rest of the kids, but not a real big kid, but he was very uh, clumsy uh, and uh, you know he was a gangly awkward, uh, awkward looking kid, nothing special, nothing makes you think he'd ever make a great player.
0: And uh, that's uh, quite an understatement, and we learn later that the opposite was the case. This happened to Brandon when he got to uh, Arkansas, too. Coach, what really astounded me in the movie is that he took a lot of jabs from the players. He, they poked him. They, they were mean to him sometimes and cruel. And yet at the end, he didn't hold it against them. And indeed, he didn't take it out against them. He just led them, Coach. And that, that's a remarkable thing as a young man, to be treated so poorly but not return the jibes and the insults. Put it behind him and just lead. Talk about that it, part of his it's character. A,
3: it's a it's a rarity. It's just so rare of uh, uh, talking about turning the other cheek and poke at me and jab at me. And he just keeps right on going in uh, that self. Just very not much conversation. Just tend to business and and i just I had such awesome respect for that i had a, also had awesome respect for if, if somebody was was starting to tell a dirty joke he would walk away he was just so good and and um i i just i just really think his attitude and his personality became contagious in that locker room and uh i could see it i could see it especially once we were 3-0 4-0 we beat alabama we get on this roll and now Man, it's, I said this is a this is a championship caliber team, and the freshmen and sophomores were looking up and following these guys. And so, uh, what a leader! But you're exactly right. He didn't worry about anybody poking and jabbing at him. He, he just stayed right in stride. He stuck to the roadmap, and he never wavered.
0: And the theme in his life, obviously, Tommy Tice didn't think he'd make it in high school, and he did. And then no one thought he'd make it in college, and he did. Uh, This young man, well, I think he had an audience of two, it turns out. I think it was his mom, and I think it was his God. I want to talk to you a bit about the role of faith in this film. I'm so glad that it's there, but I'm also glad that it's it's there with a light hand. He's walking the walk, and so often in films that have a Christian theme, it's just a, a lot of daisies and rainbows and a lot of verse. But here, it's the light of Brandon that shows his faith, not his talk about his faith. And I really, I love that about this picture. Talk about his walk and how it led other men to walk stronger and stand up straighter.
3: Well, Brandon had this quiet demeanor and he was not a rah-rah, but when he spoke, they listened. And um, you knew that he always did things the right way. And one of the biggest things early on that I knew that in the spring, uh, he he would go home on Wednesdays uh, to take his mother to church. Ironically... The, the day that we were passing out the Southeastern Conference rings, he told me the day before, he says, Coach, I'll be going to Harrison on Wednesday, so I'll just get my ring the, next, the following day. I said, well, the team, everybody's going to be in here. We're going to try to make it a, a nice deal for everybody. He says, I know, Coach, but it's Wednesday night and i got to go. So it sent such a strong message to me, Lee, that you know what, no matter how big, these earthly things are. The ring, the Southwest Conference ring, which they haven't won in no, I don't know how long, was a big, big deal. Of, they, they got to order the ring themselves, the seniors. I let the seniors order the ring. The biggest deal is it, was, it wasn't bigger than going, sticking with his ritual of taking his mother to church. He had an unbelievable walk. He had a true faith, and you could see it You could see it. Not that he stood up and and tried to hammer it down somebody's throat. That wasn't Brandon. But you could see it, Lee. You could see it the way he walked, the way he talked, the words that he used and the people he chose to to be around and uh, just going through the cafeteria line saying, yes, ma'am, thank you for the green beans. I mean, just little bitty things you said, man, this is a special guy.
0: You know, one of the themes of this show, Coach, is that so often Hollywood strips faith out of men of faith and it animates their lives, and it's the reason they are who they are. We did a couple of hours on Coach Wooden. And if you were to go in the usual places, you wouldn't learn that Coach Wooden held a little wooden cross in his hand. Throughout his entire coaching career, it had been given to him by the head coach of Purdue. And he said, this will help you when you want to lose your temper. And he gripped it all the time on that bench. We learned about Jackie Robinson and his prayer life. Not in the movie. Louis Zamperini, my goodness, Billy Graham's not in that movie, Coach. I don't know how that happens, because yeah. Louis Zamperini's famous for having said, two things happened in my life. I crashed into an ocean, and I crashed into Jesus Christ. And what a story. Wow. And with Steph Curry, uh, all of these great athletes that we look up to, who, so many of them who behave themselves, it's, it's a God thing. It's their walk. And yet, for some reason, Coach, the big sports broadcasters don't talk about it much. What's, what's going on there? Do you have any idea or ideas?
3: Well, you know, it's just uh, sometimes, a lot of times, you know, it's not cool enough and uh they say better not hit that subject but the one thing about brandon Burlsworth, you better hit it because it was so big in his life that was the number one thing and um he's such a great christian young man it's it's almost too good to be true but there's there's people that will shy away get a little nervous about it yeah but brandon he didn't get nervous about it and and he he made and took some some ribbon from his teammates when he said you're not gonna be at the The Wednesday night ceremony of the rings, our championship rings, but you helped us win. No, I won't be. I got to go to church. You got to go to church, so I could just see. You know, there's several times, um, and you know, the Grant Garrett could really tell you some good story. Grant Garrett was the center. Russ Brown, these guys, they were such good friends, and they did rib him a lot. But I tell you what, he didn't flinch.
0: And you know, the mark of a good leader and a good athlete and a good guy and a good husband is to be able to take a ribbon and not take it personally, and lead, and then maybe throw a little ribbon back, or maybe not, and just enjoy the camaraderie of the team. And that is clear in this film, Coach. Is there anything that was missing in the movie that you wished you'd seen?
1: Oh,
5: I,
3: you know, it, it's so good. I, I love the movie. I just, uh, you know, I'm always wanting more. I'm always wanting more of the side of uh, of just um, – the relationship he had with Jesus and also what he, the way he he took his mother to church every Wednesday and, and those things, I think it's, I think that's huge. And, uh, he wasn't ashamed. And I think when a big guy at six foot four, 315, 320 pounds, I, I think it sends a serious, serious big time message when he doesn't flinch no matter what the ribbing is. And he's not ashamed uh, of knowing who his uh, personal savior is.
0: No, and then there was no shame in the boy. And by the way, we learned what a real academic star he was too. I mean, getting oh, getting his MBA at the same time. So he's also leading not only on the gridiron, he's leading off the gridiron, Coach. Oh,
3: you know, that, that's the one thing for sure that I, I knew early on, that he was a leader on and off the field. And um, whether it be study hall, whether it be doing an extra credit paper, it's just like when he tried to earn the scholarship he, he he did not ever take a lazy step, and that's why this movie's so good. Um, you know, one of my favorite movies is Rudy, he was a famous walk on, but I want to tell you something this walk on here, uh, you, you're talking about to me the top of all top uh, people because of not only on the field but off the field.
0: Well, coach, we appreciate you joining us and sharing your memories of Brandon Bolsworth. And the next time you're in Oxford, I owe you a lunch or a dinner and looking forward to seeing you again when you cross over this side of Mississippi. Great. Can't wait. Thank you so much. Coach Houston Nutt, he coached Brandon Burlsworth. Brandon's senior year. The movie is, the great, is greater. It's in movies and movie theaters everywhere. Go and see it. Take a friend. And if you're a coach, take the whole team. I am telling you. It's the best instructional video on leadership. And it's actually, well, I'm going to use this word, and I don't say it often. It's inspiring. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories.
6: time that I found her holding Jim loving him then Sue came along loved me
5: strong that's what I thought me and Sue that died too
0: Are we playing this again? We are playing this because this is awesome. the music. This is the music segment where we disagree about everything, <laughs> as anybody will do when they talk about their most privately and closely held musical passions. And this is one of mine. I love Neil Diamond, and people look at me funny when I say that, as Jesse is right now. He's mortified.
7: <laughs> I thought you didn't like it. That's why we're going to come in and kind of
0: laugh at it. No, I actually love Solitary oh my Man, gosh. and I hate Coming to America. <laughs> huh. That's interesting. Now, I don't like the production of this because this was laced in the sixties, but when you strip it down, it's a really, it's a great song. And that's what we, you know, what's always fun about music is, you know, Elvis can be great. Then Elvis is in the sweet jumpsuit and he sounds crazy. And depending on where you enter Elvis's life, you'll look at another guy and go, what were you thinking? (laughs) And this was, I think, the case with Neil Diamond. And so we were having a random discussion about music, about, well, Hengler's obsession with Dave Matthews, it's a—it's rather strange. <laughs> he says he's had religious epiphanies at Dave Matthews concerts.
5: Everyone out there is saying, Lee's strange for feeling that way, because it's the—it's normal.
0: It's normal. And Jesse just doesn't understand any of it, uh. because he doesn't get Dave Matthews. And all he does when you say Dave Matthews is he does that famous Jesse grunt. Ugh, <laughs> Ugh. That's it. You're not going to hear another word from him. And we're not sure what Alex <laughs> likes because he, he he loves Creed and then says, I'm sorry, right after he says it. <laughs> Everybody's
7: got those guilty pleasures. You just tell, you know, it's uh, true.
0: What's it, yours, Ed? We're, we don't know your guilty pleasures.
7: Come clean. I, uh, yeah. Now come clean. You've got one. Spice Girls? Spice Girls. <laughs> come on. What, you know what? Uh, you're getting closer. I'm trying to figure it <laughs> out. Uh, who do, I, I I like Taylor Swift. I, I, well, I would no, never I, buy her I, albums, but I think she's a talented and a good role model, I guess. I don't know. Yeah.
0: But yeah, that's okay. But that's, that's not so terrible. That's not so terrible. I mean, Ryan Adams just recorded that Taylor Swift record. He's cool. So he's, you know, she's sort of kind of cool. And you got, you know, you got kids too. Yeah, so, you I know. just can't
7: think of too much crap that I actually do enjoy. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
5: <laughs> doesn't even make
7: sense. Well, no, what
0: he's saying is that we actually enjoy garbage, but he
5: can't. You right. have to be aware of what other people think of it. It's not you consider it crap. Like for me, right. I know other people consider air supply to suck. I like air supply. Oh, that's painful. Making right. love out of nothing at all? That's great. It's Stadium Rock. <laughs> stadium it's Rock. 2 a.m. I'm drunk again. It's heavy on my mind. Stop mumbling, Dave. <laughs>
7: Stop mumbling.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, hey, look, we have our favorite concerts, and we have our worst concert experiences. And so that's what we really have to dig into here, and uh, worst concert experience, Edwards. You're getting, you're revved up to see the show, and they come out, and
7: they just That was easy. Uh, Peter Frampton was the worst show I think I've ever seen in my life. And why? Not only was it just sounding out of key, and it was just boring, and his opening act, who was Buddy Guy, was ten times more talented than he was. Of course. he, he, before his set he came out and whined at the audience not to take his picture because it, the, the show previously I forget where it was somebody was taking his picture he told him to stop and the guy kept taking pictures so the guy ripped his iPhone out of the out of his hand and threw it backstage <laughs> it caused, caused a, a little snuffle in, in the news it was in the news but and so, so he, he, said, he, he got up on stage for a half hour and told us why he didn't want people taking his picture.
0: Oh, that's great. So you're getting lectured at a concert. Yeah,
7: so I started taking his picture, and you know, his guitar player <laughs> was shaking his head at me. So then my wife and I and the people we were with, we just turned our backs to him and sat there. <laughs> on the lawn with our backs to him, during the whole show. And everybody takes but, pictures. I mean, you spend of- your entire life trying to be somebody up on a stage and get your image out there and be a rock star, heaven forbid, and somebody's going to take your picture and you're going to whine about it like a little girl.
0: It's crazy.
7: I, I mean, no, Buddy Guy was amazing. Oh, yeah, He, he was only allowed to play for like a half hour because... Little prissy boy uh, Peter Frampton <laughs> had to come out there on on stage with his sequins pants and, and those little rivets on it. It just it was so stupid. And this was an intimate show where it was the Brit Festivals in Oregon, where you know there's nothing between you and the stage. It's just the right. grass and the stage. But yep. He had to have these big old mer- metal barriers up there, like these six foot tall metal. to
0: protect bills. them from you crazy yeah, fans. Yeah, to protect
7: us from you know this this little tiny hippie festival kind of a thing. And it's just man. I'll oh, never, yeah. never again. Sorry.
0: Yeah. And by the way, Frampton <laughs> was this gigantic star. Yeah. Frampton Comes Alive was this gigantic record, and he was this sex symbol, and he was in movies, and then he was nobody, which has got to be really painful. Hengel, your worst concert experience. Or do you just love all of them?
5: I, I was sitting there thinking, like, and yeah, I pretty much did, because I don't, I don't commit unless I know, you know, it's going to be good stuff, but... I would have to say that the opening band for um, GNR was Soundgarden, and it was beyond awful.
0: Guns N' Roses. GNR is Guns N' Roses for you non Guns N' Roses fans. (laughs) GNR. S. You didn't say Soundgarden. You should have said S. (laughs) Oh, yeah, right. Soundgarden. Right. Got it. Mine was Johnny Cash, biggest disappointment I liked. Oh, i have seen him a couple of times, and he was just terrible. But then I saw him when he was good, and then that was one of the great nights of my life. he's your favorite. He is, but what I'm saying is sometimes you go to see you your know. favorite, Led Zeppelin. I mean, I saw them in the Madison Square Garden. It was terrible. It was in, incomprehensibly bad. And then I saw him again t- two or three years later, and it was incomprehensibly good. Yeah. Stevie Ray Vaughan, incomprehensibly bad when he was on drugs. Then I saw him on the In Step tour just before that helicopter crashed and he died. Best show, One of the best shows I've ever seen. How about
7: a show, how about like a, a group you didn't like, but then you saw them live and then you liked them instantly? Oh my goodness. Uh,
0: there's a bunch of Mine was Metallica. People. I
7: couldn't stand Metallica. And then I went to a show and I was like, oh, okay, I get it. Now and I can't stand them anymore again, but
0: a lot of the, such is life. Some of the country acts, that's what did it. Lone Star Cafe hooked me to George Jones. Uh-huh. It got me going. Uh, got me going on a bunch of people, and then the the Pink Floyd. I never liked Pink Floyd till I saw him. Wow! Wow! Yep. And Prince. I didn't like Prince at all till I saw <laughs> Prince. And Prince may have been the greatest showman I've ever seen in my life. Better oh. than James Brown, and I saw James Brown, and James Brown had nothing over Prince. Wow! So yeah. Wow. What about what about you 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 gentlemen over there, John? Best show.
4: <laughs> best show, um, man. What we entered with Neil Diamond, just the energy in the, in the stadium. the <laughs> Wise,
0: wise but, man.
4: I mean, that was. It was amazing. The whole crowd together singing every song. I mean, it was amazing. Worst concert? Yeah. Pretty easy. Uh, It was Paul Simon and Bob Dylan together. Oh, wow. And Dylan was horrible. You couldn't (laughs) even understand what he was saying. Paul Simon, on the other hand, good show, but they were playing together, and it was amazing. That's rough.
0: And uh, we're going to go out with some... Neil Diamond, just for Jesse. Just Yay! for Jesse. And Alex, the you love Creed. We need to say no more. I will have to leave on that note. This is Leah Habib. This is Our American Stories. Just goofing off here for a segment, just like you do so often in your life. More after these messages.
7: Those horns sound like flatulence. <laughs> <laughs>
0: This is Lee Habib and this is Our American Stories and you're listening to Muddy Waters and that's The Last Waltz, directed by Martin Scorsese, Dr. John, Eric Clapton, Neil Young, Joni Mitchell, Van Morrison, Ronnie Hawkins. But you knew the man who stole the show was Muddy Waters and Jesse's a big my boy Jesse here is a big blues fan, and we've got a piece on Muddy Waters. He was an American blues musician who was often cited as the father of modern Chicago blues. Muddy grew up on Stovall Plantation near Clarksdale, Mississippi, just about an hour from Oxford, where we broadcast
7: from. And we bring you, on this day, his birth, his story. Muddy Waters was born McKinley Morganfield on April 4th, 1915, in Rolling Fork, Mississippi, a rural town. On the Mississippi River He was given the moniker Muddy Waters Because he played in the swampy puddles Of the Mississippi River as a boy When Waters was just three years old His mother Bertha Jones died And he was subsequently sent to Clarksdale To live with his grandmother Delia Jones Waters began to play the harmonica Around the age of five And became quite good He received his first guitar at the age of 17 And taught himself to play By listening to recordings of Mississippi blues legends Like Charlie Patton
8: First with the harmonica, as I said, that's what the kids begin the the water from the harmonica. I, I like and uh, picked up the guitar after listening to a great old guy by the name of House And and I was became 17 years old. You heard of was sad night fish fries, but uh, we call them we used to have uh, supper to go to the juke house or whatever. And there are different guys come in from all over, like the, the, the playing these these at these parties. Guys like Charlie Patton and, and the Mississippi Sheiks and and sunhouse' the only kind of people I
7: landed although waters spent countless hours working as a sharecropper at a cotton plantation he found time to entertain folks around the town with his music it wasn't a
8: a going easy thing because uh, we was doing cause like sharecropping. I raised up like a sharecropper you know worked on the plantation where raised cotton and corn and beans and all that and jive and it wasn't exactly slavery time but it wasn't there no really good times. You know. I mean, we had a good time. I, I learned all, all, all of my music through that spirit. So it was wonderful t- for me to, I guess to live that and then I know
7: what I was trying to learn. In 1941, he joined the Celias Green Tent Show and began to travel.
8: A lot of it came right out the field where I liked and, and doing my work on the plantation because I, I grew up to be able to drive tractors and trucks and before I left, I was in my late 20s when I left Mississippi.
7: As he began to gain recognition, his ambition grew. Now,
9: when I believe- woman i have lots of fun i'm a man
7: then after alan lomax and john work who were archivists and researchers for the library of congress field recordings project caught wind of water's unique style they sought him out to make this recording
9: and laid over in the evening child i feel like like blowing my home I woke up this morning to find my, my little baby gone. Late on in the evening, man, man, I feel like like blowing my home. Well, I woke up this morning, baby, find my little baby gone. In 1943,
7: Muddy Waters finally picked up and headed to Chicago, Illinois, where music was shaping a generation. The following year, his uncle gave him an electric guitar. It was with this guitar that he was able to develop the legendary style that transformed the rustic blues of the Mississippi with the urban vibe of the big city. Working at a paper mill by day, Waters was sweeping the blues scene by night. By 1946, he had grown so popular that he'd begun making recordings for big record companies such as RCA, Columbia, and Aristocrat. It wasn't until 1950 when Aristocrat became Chess Records that Waters' career really began to take off.
8: Well, my mother told my father
7: Roland Stone, one of his singles, became so popular that it went on to influence the name of the major music magazine as well as one of the most famous rock bands to date. The Rolling Stones.
9: By 1951,
7: Muddy Waters had established a full band with his Otis Spann on piano, Little Walter on harmonica, Jimmy Rogers on second guitar, and Elgin Evans on drums. The band's recordings were increasingly popular in New Orleans, Chicago, and the Delta region in the United States, But it wasn't until 1958, when the group brought their electric blues sound to England, that Muddy Waters became an international star. After the English tour, Muddy Waters' fan base expanded and began to catch the attention of the rock and roll community. His performance at the 1960 Newport Jazz Festival was a particularly pivotal point in his career as it caught the attention of a new fan base. Waters was able to adapt the changing times and his electric blues sound to fit in well with the Love Generation. And I knew
9: Now the war going on Trouble in the east And the weapon tower Some folk compete But it won't last The world is coming Much too fast The sun got mad Shot pop papa down, you troublemaker, you're coming down. Where are you gonna run to, and where you gonna hide? Where are you gonna run, where you gonna hide?
7: Waters continued to record with rock musicians throughout the 1960s and 70s and won his first Grammy Award in 1971 from the album They Call Me Muddy Waters. After his 30-year run with Chess Records, he went his separate way in 1975, suing the record company for royalties after his final release with them, Muddy Waters' Woodstock album. Waters signed on with Blue Sky Label after the split. He then captivated audiences with his appearance in the band's farewell performance known as The Last Waltz, an exceptionally star-studded affair that was released as a film by Martin Scorsese in 1978
9: for a grown man,
6: man, I'm
9: a night lovers, man, man, I'm a rolling stone, man,
7: By the end of his lifetime, Muddy Waters had garnered six Grammys as well as countless other honors. He died after suffering a heart attack on April 30th, 1983, in Downers Grove, Illinois. Since his death, Muddy Waters' contribution to the music world has continued to gain recognition. In 1987, Waters was posthumously inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Five years later, the National Academy of Recording Arts and Sciences awarded the musician a Lifetime Achievement Grammy Award. Some of the most recognizable names in music have named Muddy Waters as their single greatest influence, including Eric Clapton, Jimmy Page, Jeff Beck, and Johnny Winter. Wasn't that a man? Muddy Waters! Here's Eric Clapton.
6: Most of the players that came to Chicago that were, that were really vital came from what they call the Mississippi Delta, the Howlin' Wolf and Muddy Waters. They played in bands and they played uh, in clubs. They had actually a way to become sophisticated, I think, and they had competition The guys would come up and they'd go and visit Muddy in his club and they'd see how sharp he was and the kind of suits he was wearing and the kind of money he was getting. And they'd have to revise their act and it would speed up the process and bring out the best, the absolute best in everybody. I would have been 18 or 19 and I got a call from this guy Mike Vone. He said, there's a great opportunity for you to come and play with Muddy and Otis. I tried my best to be cool, but I was just in bits. All I can remember is them dancing i remember them because they i play we we all did it in it was over in about an hour it was so fast and these guys had suits on that were like silver silk big suits and and that when they were listening to the playback they danced and they held their trousers up so that you know they were they, big trousers and they would do these kind of fancy foot steps holding their trousers up like skirts you know and it was just breathtaking He meant a great deal to me, and his music still does probably more than anybody else's. It was the first, really, that got to me, and it still is the most important music in my life today, is the music of Muddy Waters.
7: Though Muddy Waters' life lasted from April 4th, 1915, to April 30th, 1983, passing away at the age of 70, his music influenced the blues and rock world for an eternity. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. Great
0: job on that, Jesse. And this is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. The life of McKinley Morganfield, a.k.a. Muddy Waters. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to hear this and all the other things that we do. And this is our American stories. And the subject for this segment well, actually, we just heard it a couple of times right there in that piece by Stevie Ray Vaughan. He had a nice, well, pause right there. And we've been pushing around this piece for, I don't know, since it seems like last year in praise of the one second pause which Hengler worked up, and, uh, well, we're going to resuscitate it because it seems like it's already been buried. And when we we went to Hengler and said, hey, I think we should do that one second pause. Now he went, what? You're serious. We're not going to really do it, are we? And we really are. And, uh, well, before we do, I just wanted to talk a little bit about why pauses matter in literature. And I don't know if you remember your class way back, if you ever took a poetry class or a writing class. But the cesura is one of the most important literary devices there is in poetry. And well, what it means well, here's the actual definition from the poetry archive. A cesura is a strong pause within a line and is often found alongside an enjambment. If all the pauses in the sense of the poem were to occur at the line breaks, this could become dull. Moving the pauses so they occur within the line creates musical interest. A sesura may be marked like this, and then you'll see two straight lines next to each other. So when you're reading a poem and you see that, that means shut up, basically. Shut up. Two lines. John Moles' Coming Home has a fi- first stanza that sets off in a very steady rhythm, with the first four sentences the same length as the line and the same length as each other, the fifth sentence is only half the line long, and the pause following that full stop creates a really dramatic caesura. So again, where and how to use pauses. And by the way, musicians, great ones, especially as they get older. Listen to B.B. King play when he was young. Listen to him play when he was older. And I say the same for my dear and most beloved guitarist, and my personal favorite, Stevie Ray Vaughn. Listen to him play when he was young, up and down the fret like a madman. Older, sometimes he just shut up. Hardest thing to do sometimes. By the way, all over the Bible, you'll see the same thing. Called something different. And I'm holding in my hand Psalm 3. Save me, oh my God. That's one of the Psalms of David when he fled from Absalom with his son. O oh Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, There is no salvation from him in God. Sesur. I'm supposed to shut up now. But you, O oh Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord. And he answered me from his holy hill. Say, Sora. So on and so forth. So now on to Hengler's in praise of the one-second pause. And, well, we're going to be talking to someone, or Greg did, named Marty Nemco, who holds a Ph.D. in education from the University of California, Berkeley. He is in his 26th year as a host of a national public radio, San Francisco radio show, And Marty recently wrote a piece for Psychology Today entitled, In Praise of the One-Second Pause, he
10: began his piece asking these questions. How do you feel when someone interrupts you? Very few people like it. Well, this question is harder. How do you feel when someone starts to talk the nanosecond you finish saying something? Chances are you don't like that either. After all, that suggests that the person was more interested in saying something than in digesting what you said. Or maybe the person stopped paying attention and was just waiting for you to finish. Now, in contrast, imagine that you finished saying something and the person took a full second to think. Maybe saying, hmm, now how are you feeling? You're probably feeling the person thought your statement was worth pondering. And, more foundational, that you were taken seriously, which we all want.
0: Well, we had Our American stories. Greg Hengler ask Marty, what would we say to someone who just likes to talk and never takes that breath? Or how would we respond to somebody who consistently interrupts us? Here's Marty's
10: answer. It's very difficult to change people, but I am a big believer in giving tactfully dispensed unwanted advice. So if somebody really is interrupting me all the time, I would in a very tactful and simple way say, I really would like to finish. And if you watch CNN or you watch any kind of TV or radio show, you'll see that the experienced guests who are on panels, if there is one of their um, panelists is interrupting all the time, they'll say something like, I allowed you to finish, please allow me. And do that in that very calm way. You pay a price no matter what. You pay a price if you ignore it. But you pay a bigger price if you're constantly ignoring And Again, it depends on the situation. If you're getting interviewed for a job, I'm not sure you're going to want to interrupt <laughs> the interviewer and say, uh, to tell the would you please stop interrupting me? <laughs> yeah. But in more common situations where the risk-reward ratio is better, it may be worth offering a bit of gentle feedback.
0: We know a man who adheres to a four-sentence rule. This involves speaking approximately four sentences and then waiting to see if the listener wants to hear more. He does this because we often say more than our listener wants to hear. Is this rule basically a different take compared to your one-second pause suggestion?
10: It's a very different rule, and I find that uh, too rigid. That's the rule of how long you should talk. I'm much more in favor of what I call the traffic light rule. During the first 30 seconds of an utterance, your light is green. The person is paying attention, uh, not overwhelmed with content. During the second 30 seconds of an utterance, your light is yellow. There's an increased chance that the person is wishing you would stop or indeed has something that he or she wants to say. At the 60-second mark, you occasionally uh, want to run a red light, which is, uh, but usually you want to stop. So I think that gives a little more flexibility than four sentences because sometimes things take less than four sentences and sometimes more. Boy, these are really good rules to live by, actually.
0: Never really thought about that before. I think I've got like a nine minute rule. I gotta really work on this, man. Here's Marty
10: on a pet peeve he has involving conversation. Narcissism. Normally in a conversation, it is like a ping pong game. You wanna spend roughly half the time with the ball in your court. Roughly, it's more like 40 to 60% in a conversation. And very many people violate the rule in either direction. They're either narcissistic and they will talk about 80 or 90% of the time and never ask a question about you. Or if they do, it's obligatory, and then they. but they're really not paying attention. They're only half listening. Or on the other hand, of course, there are people who have difficulty speaking up and who talk 20, 10 to 20% of the time. So a nice rule of thumb is to go for roughly 40 to 60% of the time using the traffic light rule and using the one-second pause. But I would be full of BS if I said that was very, easy to change. It is very difficult to change a natural habit of interrupting, talking at too great length, and not pausing.
4: Well,
0: so far we have chose to cut out Greg's question to Marty. But for this one, we will be including Greg's question because it's a personal one. But wait for it. So is Marty's answer.
5: I don't necessarily consider myself a narcissist, but I I know that I struggle with returning the favor when somebody asks me a question, you know, how was your day? What did you do this weekend? A lot of times I'll give them an answer, and then I won't say, well, how was yours? And then I walk away, and I can, it's usually four or five minutes later, I'm like, oh, man, I did it again. I didn't ask them. I just must come off as just selfish.
10: Yeah, well, that's what the narcissist thing is about. It becomes <laughs> not high enough priority that while you count, so does your conversation partner. Ouch. That stung. Greg asked for some
5: clarity. So I fall into the narcissist category.
10: Well, it's too strong. I mean, okay. you're way ahead of the game because you're concerned about it. You're aware about it. You're in that interim transition period from when you are unaware and just oblivious and continuing to blather on and a full conversation partner. So I would bet that you will do fine. It's your, you're just in that transition period. You're not a narcissist.
0: There you go, folks. None of us here have perfected the art of dialogue. And thought this would be a piece of advice we could all put in our back pocket and actually use. In praise of the one-second pause, and don't forget, 30 seconds green light, 45 seconds yellow light. You go past a minute and don't let the other guy talk, you got a problem. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. This is lee habib and this is our american stories it's time for our this day in history segment brought to us as always by hillsdale college this is a name you may or may not know but he a lot he had a lot to do with the foundation of this country and the economic development of this country let's take a listen
11: Ever hear of the Great Depression of 1920? No? Me either. Do you know why? Why following World War I, one of the worst financial crises in US history never deepened and never became great? It's because of one man named Andrew Mellon. Mellon was the third wealthiest American of his era, just behind John D. Rockefeller and Henry Ford left a dazzling career in American industry to become the longest serving Secretary of Treasury in United States history, serving under presidents Warren Harding, Calvin Coolidge, and Herbert Hoover. Mellon's Gulf Oil challenged the legendary John D. Rockefeller and his establishment of Alcoa introduced lightweight aluminum as a significant industrial metal. Would the 65-year-old Mellon give up running his profitable ventures to work under President Harding, a career politician who had little understanding of economics? Let's set the stage. The year is 1921, and the United States is in economic chaos and recovering from World War I. The national debt has skyrocketed, and unemployment is 12%. In perhaps his shrewdest move, the newly elected President Harding asks Andrew Mellon, a Pittsburgh multimillionaire of so few words he'd make silent Cal Coolidge appear verbose, to come to his home in Marion, Ohio, to discuss the Secretary of the Treasury job. Mellon takes a train to Marion, but no one in the depot shows up to meet him so he walks the mile to Harding's house, suitcase in hand, only to encounter a three block long line of local job seekers. So the third richest man in America takes his place in the lackadaisical line to have his appointment with the president. After a couple of hours, one of Harding's clerks notices Mellon patiently waiting in line.
5: Excuse me, Mr. Mellon.
11: Yet Mellon refuses to have any fuss made and insists on taking his turn behind the others. When Mellon's turn finally arrives, he spends much of the time trying to talk Harding out of choosing him to head the Treasury Department. The financier of the universe, as Harding labeled him, finally gave in and immediately studies the recession, which was severe. Here's Hillsdale College history professor, Bert Folsom.
4: Andrew Mellon spent the first year as Secretary of Treasury studying the tax situation. One thing that he observed was that when William Rockefeller died, he had seven million dollars invested in Standard Oil. However, William Rockefeller had forty-four million dollars invested in tax-exempt bonds. That forty-four million dollars was not working fully for the American economy. He concluded if tax rates were at a maximum of 25 percent we could bring that capital back and those investments would put people back to work.
11: The U.S. tax system is in disarray. Under President Woodrow Wilson, Harding's predecessor, the income tax started with a top marginal rate of 7 percent. But by Wilson's last full year in office, the top rate reached 73%, a rate nearing confiscation. Tax avoidance is rampant, but the extremely high tax rates drag the economy down faster than Bernie behind the boat.
9: Man overboard! What? Stop the boat! Oh, Bernie!
11: A reference to Weekend at Bernie's, if you haven't seen it. Andrew Mellon, from his great investments in aluminum and corner gas stations, knows that capital flees from taxes and runs toward freedom. Without knowing it, Mellon has come up with an early version of the Laffer Curve, which says that at a certain point, raising taxes will result in less revenue to government, because people will silently revolt and either cease work or go into the black market. Mellon convinces Harding to ask Congress for a radical tax cut. Of course, many in government oppose. In a stunner, the New York Times of 1909 actually warned, when men get into the habit of keeping themselves to the property of others, they cannot easily be cured of it. Why not, Mellon argues, cut the top rate from 73 to 25% and the bottom rate from 25 to 5%. This idea, that is called the Mellon Plan, not only encourages the rich to invest in the American economy, it actually generates more revenue. It seems difficult for some to understand, writes Mellon, that high rates of taxation do not necessarily mean large revenue to the government, and that more revenue may often be obtained by lower rates. Harding dies in 1923, and his vice president, Calvin Coolidge, becomes president. Coolidge is a huge fan of the Mellon plan. I agree perfectly are his exact words. Coolidge and Mellon not only think alike, but they act alike. Both men are shy, and at state dinners they must have made guests uneasy because they say next to nothing. Author Cleveland Amory writes that Mellon and Coolidge seem to converse almost entirely in pauses. Yet both men take almost childish delight in their families. Coolidge adores his wife and buys her fancy clothes and presents while his pet raccoon roams the White House freely. Mellon joins his children on sleigh rides. He flies kites and plays ball with them or chases them in blind man's bluff. If the children slid down the banisters, he would slide down with them, his nephew observed. He would play hide-and-seek until they were tired of the game. With the Mellon Plan in place, American businessmen plow capital into radios, cars, refrigerators, vacuum cleaners, telephones, and a variety of new inventions from the air conditioner to scotch tape and the zipper. Average Americans come to own radios, appliances, and the electricity to power them, telephones, and a myriad of other products once considered luxuries. And Henry Ford's Model T is flying off the lot. Entrepreneurs now know they will be able to keep most of what they invest, and the American economy grows rapidly during the 1920s because of it. Unemployment rates plummet to 2%. Even more shocking, the share of taxes paid by the rich skyrocket. This is why it's called the Roaring Twenties, because the economy absolutely went nuts. After Coolidge's term, Mellon stays on as Herbert Hoover's Secretary of Treasury. But the two men clash over how to respond to the Great Depression. Here again is Bert Folsom.
4: When the Great Depression hit, ultimately Hoover's recipe was to raise tax rates. It's from Mellon's rate of 25% up to 63%. In order to make this easier on Andrew Mellon, Hoover decided to kick him upstairs and make him ambassador to Great Britain. When Hoover lost to Franklin Roosevelt, Mellon left office as well. Franklin Roosevelt was a strong believer in massive government intervention. To do this, he needed a lot of federal dollars, and he raised taxes even further to a top rate of almost 80%. When that happened, Andrew Mellon and many other people shifted their investments from taxable investments to tax-exempt investments. When that happened, then Roosevelt could retaliate by saying, see, the rich are not paying their fair share. Thus, Andrew Mellon, who was perceived as the architect of the prosperity of the 1920s, ended up being blamed heavily for the Great Depression in the 1930s.
11: Moreover, Roosevelt plays politics and pressures the IRS to assess Mellon, a $3 million fine for tax evasion. Mellon gladly goes to court and is vindicated of all charges of wrongdoing. David Blair, the former Commissioner of Internal Revenue, calls the tax investigation unwarranted abuse by high officials of the government. Mellon, despite the trumped-up charges, always focuses optimistically on the art of the possible. Before his death in 1937, he donates his $50 million art collection to the United States. In doing so, he wants to avoid all federal expense, so he builds the National Gallery of Art in Washington, D.C to house the paintings, and then donates all of it to his country. When Andrew Mellon went to Washington, he changed it more than it changed him.
4: Many Americans who have looked back at the 1920s and the prosperity in that decade for wisdom have come across Andrew Mellon, President Reagan as well, looked back to the 1920s for wisdom. His idea of cutting tax rates, which he instituted in the 1980s, When Reagan became president, the top tax rate was 70 percent. President Reagan had that rate ultimately cut to 28 percent, which is close to the 25 percent that Mellon recommended. Many of Mellon's supporters have called him the greatest Secretary of Treasury since Alexander Hamilton.
0: And there you have it, the life story of Andrew William Mellon, the Mellon Plan, He died on This Day in History in 1937. And as always, our This Day in History segment brought to us by the folks at Hillsdale College. This is Our American Stories.